Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Good morning. I'm Mike Cookson and I'm the director for our course. We've been doing this course for probably more than a decade and hope appreciate you all coming in this morning, getting up nice and early for our uh, difficult cases in high-risk bladder cancer. Try to, you know, where we can uh, use the guidance from evidence-based medicine, guidelines, et cetera. They're in the process of uh, loading up some ARS uh, questions, so we're going to wait on that, but I'm going to go ahead and do the housekeeping. Uh, the AUA policy states that all planners, authors, and presenters disclose prior relevant relationships, and we've done that with our financial and commercial interests, and those disclosures are available uh, through the website at uh, www.auanet.org, annual meeting. Um, they want you to silence your phone, so um, please do that, and they've asked no photos, videos, or audio recordings, although I believe this course will be recorded, and you'll be able to watch it probably later if you want to, and it's also being broadcast, which also brings up the point that if you ask a question so that like people not in the room can hear it, we'll either repeat your question or have you come to the mic, but it's helpful if you just come to the mic when you ask your question so that those at home can hear as well. Um, we have a course evaluation that you'll fill out, and that's really important. Uh, we do a pretest, and then the post-test you'll take um, to get your CME credit too. So. We're going to give you that. And then I believe <coughs> there is a $150 Visa gift card out there for somebody um, randomly when you do your post-test. So that'll be good. How are we doing with the ARS? We're close? All right. <coughs> well, I'll go ahead and introduce our faculty then. Tim Masterson from uh, Indiana University. Uh, Tim's an associate professor there. Does a lot of complex urologic cancer cases and has been a great contributor to our bladder program. We have Jeff Holzberlein, he's the professor and chair at the University of Kansas, he's also the president of the SGO this year. Um, Jeff's a bladder expert, has funded research in the area as well. And we have Sanjay Patel, who is an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma and does a lot of complex robotic cases in addition to having a focus in, in bladder cancer. So that is our faculty. How are we doing on our ARS? One minute, okay, because if for some reason we can't, we can always do those ARS at the end, and that'd be fine with us too. There's <coughs> gonna be an audience response question for these nine questions that we have at the front. Um, I think there's a different way to log in if you're on your computer. I bet most of you in the room are probably using your um, phones, so the phones, you, you punch in 22333, that'll come up in a minute, but if you wanna go ahead and do that, you punch in 22333, and then I think in the text part, AUA meeting 818. So if you punch in to your text, 22333, and then in the subject place, AUA meeting 818, and that should get you in to be able to answer the question. So while we're waiting for this to come up, we can try that. You guys try that phone on your phone, see if it'll work. 
are you going to are you going to advance them or you want me to We'll do it. We're skipping the areas. Okay. So can you bring up then our first case slide because I think they're all kind of loaded in the same deck. There's the um, web address as well. Okay. And then if, if at some point you get that ARS back up and running, let us know and we'll administer it. We can still do the questions too at the end if you want, even without the pre-test. Okay, all right. So our first case is a 42-year-old gentleman with muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Um, he has a urothelial carcinoma with a small amount of squamous histology. Uh, he's interested in uh, treatment with curative intent and aggressive therapy, so he's interested in radical cystectomy. So the, some of the goals of this particular case are to um, highlight what are the roles of genetic testing and biomarkers in this scenario, uh, look at the clinical factors for selecting patients for neoadjuvant therapy, and what are the outcomes from that. Uh, we'll review some of the uh, newer therapies that are approved for immune therapy in the adjuvant setting and discuss eligibility criteria and outcomes. So with that, I'll have uh, Dr. Patel come up and do the first case. I'm, I'm not able to advance. How do you advance the slides on this right here? I'm not seeing the presenter view here on this thing. I don't know if it's. I see that there, but I'm just not seeing that so yeah no worries Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see it here. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. I'm uh, Sanjay Patel um, at, uh, from the University of Oklahoma. So next slide, please. I have no disclosures. Next slide. So this is uh, the case is just briefly 42-year-old year old man presented with uh, panhematuria for about a month. 
Um, no fevers, chills. He's had hematuria for several months after you elicit a little bit more um, history from him. Next slide. Um, just some of his history. He's got diabetes. He's a, he's a rural family practice doc. Yeah. Is that better? Yeah. Sorry about that. Up the mic just a bit. And uh, he's a rural fa uh, family practice doc, and uh, he's a smoker, two packs a day for about 20 years. Otherwise, other than that, uh, otherwise unremarkable. Next slide. Uh, he gets a culture. It's negative. Uh, his imaging shows uh, his upper tracts are negative. He's got left-sided hydronephrosis. Really no evidence of metastatic disease, but some small pelvic lymph nodes all under a centimeter. He has a TRBT, which shows two large tumors, four centimeters and five centimeters in the left lateral wall. In the posterior wall, you have to resect the UO to, to get it all out of there and have an overall fairly complete resection. Next slide. And he's got uh, uh, muscle invasive T2 cancer. Um, he's got mixed histology with about 10% of it being squamous. He's got associated CIS and LVI. Uh, next slide. Uh, and so, you know, next step, you know, what are the potential options? He uh, eventually opt to undergo cystectomy with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Next slide. And so the patient, he's an astute, you know, family practice doctor in rural Oklahoma, and he, he has a bunch of questions about <coughs> chemotherapy and what the benefits are. And I really want to focus some of the talk on this here. And so he's, he's asking, well, why are two potential options for, you know, cystectomy and neoadjuvant chemocystectomy? Well, what advantage does neoadjuvant chemo uh, give me? Next slide. Uh, and so you bring up some data uh, and discuss the uh, SWOG trial, which is a Grossman trial published in England Journal of Medicine 2003. Uh, they enrolled patients with T2 to T4 bladder cancer. They all got three cycles of MVAC, and the primary endpoint was PT0 at the end of it, and they found a PT0 rate of close to about 40% with neoadjuvant chemo and about 15% uh, without it, which translated, you know, these patients who got T0 had a 75% eight-year um, uh, overall survival compared to 30% if it was um, greater than T0. Next slide. There's the curves there. Next slide. Next slide. Uh, you, you also go over some of the ABC meta-analysis is where they pulled together numerous trials, um, about 11 trials, 3,005 patients, and they demonstrate an absolute survival benefit about 5% at five years in favor of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Next slide. And despite this level of evidence, um, and this is an early slide looking at 2006 and 2010, the utilization of neoadjuvant chemo uh, had remained low. There's an increase from about 10% 2006, about 20% 2010. Uh, and certainly there's numerous reasons for this. Uh, a lot of patients are ineligible to receive cisplatin due to renal function or other medical issues such as neuropathy. Uh, not all respond to the um, uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So, you know, some people feel that delays cystectomy. And so ultimately there's no real reliable means to identify who's going to benefit and who's going to be that 40% that you get that PT0. And, and so certainly there's an unmet need to to identify factors that could identify those patients. And so currently, what do we rely on? Well, we're, we rely on clinical and pathologic features, right? The, the uh, you know, the T stage, N stage. Um, and certainly there's some evidence with uh, uh, biomarkers that's pretty exciting, um, which I'll present next. Next slide. And so he, again, he's a well-informed uh, rural family practice doc, and he says, how do you know it's gonna work on me? Is there anything you can tell me that will, will will show me that. Next slide. Is there something about my pathology that can guide you to, to select neoadjuvant chemotherapy for me? Or, you know, what's all this precision-based medicine I hear about? Can you order some type of test that will tell me if I'll, I will be one of these responders to neoadjuvant chemo? Next slide. 
And, and so this is just something for you guys to think about. You know, how do you, how do you guys, uh, previous slide, thank you. How do you guys decide on who to give neoadjuvant chemotherapy to? And I, I just selected five scenarios. There's probably numerous scenarios and there's probably a lot of overlap. But uh, do you do it based off higher clinical stage? Like if they have T3 or T4 disease, suspicious nodes or borderline nodes, you rely on LVI. Again, pathologic and imaging characteristics. Um, what about hydronephrosis or palpable mass on exam under anesthesia at the time of TRBT? Or those patients you're going to give neoadjuvant chemo to? What about sending off some genetic or molecular testing? Um, or do you, do you not even factor any of it? If they've got T2 or higher, everyone gets neoadjuvant chemo if they can. Or, you know, the other, you know, extreme is no one gets it. You know, I don't think it's worth the side effects. You know, it's going to delay cystectomy. So certainly there's a lot of considerations here. Next slide. And so, uh, well, what, what evidence do we have about clinical uh, information and pathology? Next slide. There's really not a lot. Uh, as we all know, under uh, bladder cancer, uh, it's difficult to stage it due to the limitations of the scopes and the technology that we have. Uh, you can't get T3 diagnoses oftentimes on uh, TRBT, you know, just do the risk of perforation. Imaging is not super accurate either. You could have micrometastatic disease if it's under a centimeter, you know, and you still won't diagnose it. Next slide. So MD Anderson uh, published a study looking, it was a case controlled study, about 300 patients, and they said, let me, they got 300, uh, all 300 of these patients didn't get neoadjuvant chemo. And they're like, can we identify some factors based off of imaging and based off their pathology report that will categorize them into low risk or high risk? And we can say, hey, every low risk patient we just do cystectomy on, and every high risk patient we should consider them for neoadjuvant chemo. And it ended up being a coin flip. Half the people that they thought were low risk ended up being high risk at the time of cystectomy. So again, uh, it really underscores the, um, the, you know, the reliability of just pure pathology and, and pure imaging characteristics not being the best for this. Next slide. So what about molecular subtyping and genetic markers, all this precision-based medicine stuff you hear about? Can you use that to select patients for neoadjuvant chemo? Next slide. And so one thing I want to, the first thing I want to look at is molecular subtype, and, and that's just basically looking at numerous things. It's pretty multifactorial, but looking at the molecular profiles, um, based off the pathology tissue you get from the TRBT and, and obtain this, quote, molecular uh, phenotype that, uh, that might identify patients who would respond to neoadjuvant chemo. Next slide. And so uh, a lot of work has been done. Uh, one, of, one of the uh, studies I'd like to highlight is this one by Seeler, and they basically, um, thank you. Perfect. They identified uh, two big categories, basal and luminal, and the basal they divided into cloud and low and, and just basal, and the luminal was di divided into luminal infiltrated and just, you know, pure luminal. And they basically ran some survival analyses on these, and they determined that, you know, basal tumors uh, might have uh, the most benefit with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. There was a three-year overall survival benefit of about 50%. If you did not get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and it, and it went up to 80% um, in the patients who got neoadjuvant chemo. And then luminal had the best prognosis, irrespective of the treatment strategy, and so it didn't really matter if they got neoadjuvant chemo or not. So if you can look at these two, two curves here, luminal didn't really change in these two different data sets of patients who had this luminal subtype. And if you look here at the curve, the uh, kind of red curve, uh, the patients who had basal, you know, may have seen a benefit if they got neoadjuvant chemo. So potentially, 
you know, should you, should you look for this? Uh, luminal infiltrated in cloud and low tumors, they all had poor prognosis, wasn't really impacted by uh, neogenic chemo. So again, perhaps you could say that you wouldn't get any benefit from this and you need to think of other alternatives like immunotherapy or other, other chemotherapy. Decipher has certainly has a test for this. You can order if you want to. And, and so ultimately, is this, is this ready for prime time right now? Is, you know, should all basal tumors get neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Should all luminal tumors just go straight on to cystectomy? And I think that there certainly are limitations to this data. They're, you know, they're in retrospective uh, series. They've got multiple data sets and studies, a lot of heterogeneity in it, and they lack power. So I think this is certainly hypothesis generating, and it, it certainly needs prospective validation, but certainly these are things that, are, that, that can sway you one way or the other. Another thing is coxin. This is using an algorithm, like a computer algorithm, to predict whether or not they will respond. This is part of a trial, the SWOG 13-14 study. Um, and they uh, randomized patients to GEM-CIS or dose-dense MVAC. And as part of the study, they, they ran this algorithm and they said, well, let's see if we can predict what, who would uh, get a T0 response. And unfortunately, there was really no, predict, no, no benefit to this, and it kind of fizzled out after that. Uh, what about DNA damage uh, repair genes? And so cisplatinin is an alkylating agent. If you go back to, you know, biochemistry med school days and remember that stuff, it, it forms DNA crosslinks and all, interferes with DNA replication. And so then your body, when that DNA is damaged, it says, well, it sends in the machinery to repair it, the nucleotide excision repair pathways, homologous recombination pathways, amongst numerous other ones. And if those genes that fix that DNA damage are altered, maybe you can, you know, have a good response to chemotherapy. And so Plemek published um, some series looking at mutated ATM, RB, and FANCC. And you can see here that the blue line, you know, shows improved progression-free survival and improved overall survival. So certainly maybe these genes might have some insight into who would benefit from neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So ultimately, this patient that we're talking about gets uh, neoadjuvant chemo, cystectomy, and a conduit. He, he, um, he did get three cycles of dose-sense MVAC, but before he, you know, got the cystectomy, he says, well, if I'm T1 now, because that's the goal of neoadjuvant chemo is to get you to T0, let's just not do the cystectomy. Can you just take me to the OR, biopsy me, and if it's T0, just don't do the cystectomy, which I get this all the time in clinic. I don't know how many of you guys get that, but... Uh, was that safe? Should you do that? And, you know, traditionally everyone said, you know, you just got to do a cystectomy. And so there's not really a lot of data out there. Uh, this is a, uh, a series published out of Columbia where they found 41 patients who got neoadjuvant chemo and for some reason refused cystectomy. They're like, I don't want to do it. And they went to the OR and they were defined as having no tumors um, in their bladder. So they had a TRBT that was negative, imaging that was negative, uh, cytology that was negative. So again, it's a small series, 41 patients, but Half of them relapsed within about five months. And so, yes, initially they got T0, but they didn't. And if you look at the breakdown um, of the 19 that recurred, you know, that 46% that recurred, nine of them ended up getting a cystectomy. Uh, one of them developed metastatic disease. And there were nine of these that um, had non-muscle invasive cancer that they managed with TRBT. We don't have long-term data. I don't know what eventually happened to these patients here, but certainly it's about a, it's a coin flip. And so even though you think you, you, you at the time of, um, after you complete chemotherapy or T0, it just may not last. I mean, 50% is a pretty high number of recurrence. Um, well, what about a biomarker? Is there a biomarker that will predict the response to chemo and tell me if I should do a cystectomy or not? And so uh, there's a couple trials out that are trying to answer this question. I just want to quickly highlight uh, two of them. One of them is the Alliance trial. And basically everyone gets neoadjuvant chemo and then they analyze um, the patient's tissue for these 
various DNA damage repair genes. And if they have it, um, they get, after, um, um, after they're done with treatment, they get a TRBT. And if they have less than T1, they put them on bladder sparing, they watch them. And so maybe this is the select population that we should be looking at to obviate cystectomy on. Uh, here's another trial called a RETAIN trial. Again, looking at some DNA damage repair genes, they got um, uh, accelerated MVAC or dose-dense MVAC. They got a TRBT, and if they have no tumor, PT0, they watch them. And this one, if you had uh, T1 or less, you could offer them intravesical therapy, chemo, radiation, or cystectomy. So they gave them it's a dealer's choice. These trials are ongoing, and, and perhaps maybe some of these DNA damage repair genes may, may help influence our decision. Um, so anyway, um, you discuss with the patient, uh, hey, you can't really rely on PT0 alone after cystectomy at TRBT. You go through all this detail about molecular subtyping, still need validation. The genetic markers are in trial. So really, it goes back to just T2 to T4 disease is, is who should get neoadjuvant chemo. He's not interested in clinical trial and, and um, you know, has uh, uh, a cystectomy um, uh, at that time. His path comes back it, as uh, uh, Y, which is, indicates um, uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, T4AN1. He has two out of 25 nodes positive. He's got your, you know, his path came back as urothelial, and there's invasion into prostatic stroma. So again, T4A disease. Um, he recovers well. You get a scan four, uh, four weeks later, and it's NED. There's no cancer anywhere, you know. So, so the question is, well, what do you do next? You've got a guy who's got high risk for recurrence, but there's no metastatic disease. Um, and, and so what are you going to do in this patient? And he already got neoadjuvant chemo, cisplatin-based chemo. And so certainly there's numerous options. I just threw a bunch of them up here um, just for you guys to think about. And really, there wasn't really any option for this guy um, pre, you know, a year or two ago. If you had neoadjuvant chemo and T2 or higher, you just watched them and probably until most of them, a lot of them would develop metastatic disease. But there is this trial uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year um, looking at adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo. And it was a phase three trial looking at patients with R0 after surgery, like in this patient. Uh, he had, you know, his post-op scan was negative. They included bladder as well as upper tract, so you can include those patients. And the patients that they deemed to be high risk for recurrence were, you know, two groups. If you did not get neoadjuvant chemo, if you had T3, T4, or node positive, and you were not eligible or declined adjuvant chemo, you could be enrolled in this trial. Or if you did get neoadjuvant chemo, like our patient here, uh, and had a final path of T2 to T4, node positive disease, you could be enrolled. It was Q2 weeks of nivolumab for a year. The endpoint was progression-free survival, and there's about a 75 to 60 uh, percent uh, progression-free survival benefit in the patients who got nivolumab at six months, which is what they powered it for. Um, so certainly uh, something that, that we should consider in these patients because um, there previously was not, nothing out there. If you look at the NCCN guidelines, um, again, we're in this box down here. If you have T2 or higher after neoadjuvant chemo, you should give them nivolumab. Um, well, what about the patient if you did not get neoadjuvant chemo for whatever reason um, and they have T3, T4, node positive disease? You should always consider cisplatin therapy. There is a potential survival benefit, not a progression-free survival benefit, so certainly something to consider. But if they're ineligible or refuse cisplatin-based chemo, you could certainly give them uh, nivolumab. And then just to kind of touch on some of the other options, so if they, for, to put it in the context of, of the treatment of metastatic disease, uh, second line is immunotherapy, uh, and there's numerous PD-1, PD-L1 agents out there. 
and they're usually given within uh, patients who progress within 12 months of neoadjuvant chemo or, or adjuvant chemo with a platinum agent. And there's also third and fourth line agents. Again, these are all going to be dictated by your medical oncologist. Uh, and Fortimab, which is an antibody, antibody drug conjugate, and Ertafitinib, which um, uh, targets the uh, FGFR3 kinase and, uh, 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 target. And you have to have a uh, mutation in this to get it. Uh, so just to summarize, neoadjuvant chemo uh, followed by cystectomy is the optimal treatment option for uh, muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer for eligible patients. Not everyone's going to respond to the neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and there's numerous trials that are out there that are going to hopefully give us an answer on who will most benefit from it, looking at biomarkers, molecular subtyping. Coxin, as I mentioned earlier, didn't really pan out. Uh, you should consider adjuvant nevo uh, in patients with high risk for uh, recurrence after, after cystectomy. Again, it applies to even renal pelvis, ureteral tumors as well. Um, and if for immunotherapy, typically its role is um, the, the, the previous uh, predominant role was in patients with locally metastatic disease who progressed within 12 months of a platinum agent. So thank you, everybody. Are there any questions for Dr. Patel? You just go to the mic, so be recorded, I guess. I've had a few patients that have come with them. Um, you, somebody else ordered them. I'm not ordering those, but yeah, I've had um, some people that have ordered those. The challenge is that, uh, in my instance, the, it, I wasn't sure exactly what to act upon. Um, and so, I mean, do you get this test back and then you say, okay, well, there's still circulating tumor cells there and I'm going to give chemotherapy? I, I, I'm not quite sure necessarily what to do with some of the tests when you get a positive result. So. That's a little bit of the challenge. I think there's been issues like new drugs that they're going to I would say as we sit here today, there's really not any good high-level evidence to know how to change therapy based on that. It'd be more of an investigative tool. But it won't stop commercialization from trying. All right, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. Is this, um, I thought we were had a, the cases look a little out of order, but this will be case three, I guess. Um, uh, Tim Masterson will talk on this one. This is a patient with high-risk T1 bladder cancer with CIS, and we'll, the options for T1 tumors, we'll talk about that and the role of maintenance and upper tract monitoring. Good morning, everybody. Appreciate you getting up early and joining us for this uh, session. And thank you to Mike for organizing it year after year. Um, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the importance of high-grade T1 bladder cancer. Um, we all should be familiar that this is defined by invasion into the lamina propria, and this represents sort of a transitional tumor between non-muscle invasive TA tumors and CIS versus those that become muscle invasive. So understanding the importance of these and how to manage them properly to optimize outcomes for patients. We know that genetically these uh, look more like muscle invasive tumors than they do superficial tumors. We know the initial diagnostic management of them with TURBT is very important, including restaging TURBT, and we'll talk about the risk of understaging in those patients, um, as well as the risk of progression for these patients and the outcomes that impacts their long-term survival. If we look at the management uh, for T1 tumors based upon the NCCN guidelines, uh, they're going to tell us that uh, we should be uh, doing a restaging TURBT on all of these patients. The AUA guidelines for non-muscle invasive tumors suggest the same, and this is irrespective of whether or not there was muscle in the specimen at the initial resection or not. And so one of the questions that often comes is at academic centers, if I do a TURBT and I have muscle in the specimen and I have T1 disease, am I still doing a restaging TUR? The answer is yes, I'm doing it on all of them. Why is that? Well, there can be microscopic extension of, of sort of tumor roots into the muscle wall that aren't visible at the time of TURBT, and you're using that restaging resection of the surgical bed to figure out whether or not any residual disease is left behind. Why is that important? Because that has a direct impact on both recurrence-free survival. If you look at this um, study from 2014, if they had a no residual tumor, their risk of recurrence was relatively low, and their risk of progression was even lower. But if they had any residual disease at the time of that restaging resection, they had very high rates of recurrences and very high rates of progression. This data has also been corroborated by others. Um, when you look at risk factors for progression to muscle invasive disease in restaging pathology for T1 tumors, grade of the tumor, the number of tumors that were present, the complete response at the initial endoscopic evaluation after resection is important, but the most important fi factor is what is the pathology at the time of the restaging. So again, if you have no residual disease, I don't know if I have a... So if you have no residual disease or you have a little bit of disease, these patients generally do pretty well as far as the risk for progression, but if you have persistent T1 disease on restaging, these patients have a very high risk of progressing to muscle invasive disease. So the guidelines for those who have persistent high-grade T1 disease on a restaging TUR, considerations for early cystectomy need to be considered because of that high rate of progression uh, to muscle invasive disease during that initial five-year period afterwards. The NCCN guidelines will tell us that for um, those that are BCG naive um, and are favorable uh, patients, these should be uh, move on to BCG therapy, but early cystectomy can be considered in some patients. Which patients would those be? Uh, those who have persistent T1 on restaging, but also those who have any variant histologies like micropapillary or plasmacytoid features. Um, those who have lymphovascular invasion are at a higher risk for uh, regional spread and invasion, and those who have prostatic uh, urethral involvement are also high-risk patients. So. For those uh, who are um, uh, considering treatment, and a six-week induction uh, course would be recommended for all of those for non-muscle invasive disease. For those who respond to BCG, if they have a complete response uh, at the time of after completion of BCG, these patients have a relatively low risk of progression to muscle invasive disease. However, 
if they have an incomplete response to treatment, you can see rates out to five years that almost all of these patients will eventually progress to muscle invasion uh, over time. So again, you have to uh, understand the implications of these patients that are becoming refractory to some of these treatments and their risk for progression. Other data looking at the response at three months shows similar features of a relatively low risk of progression to muscle invasion uh, if they had a complete response to treatment, whereas those who had um, an incomplete response at three months, again, a very high rate of muscle invasion progression, and most of that occurred within the first year. So for those who do respond completely, we should be considering maintenance BCG for these patients. Uh, the SWOG trial uh, that was published uh, by Don Lamb shows uh, after a three-year induction or maintenance uh, course that these patients do much better as far as their uh, recurrence-free survival. The duration of, of maintenance uh, from the URTC trial questions whether it should be three years or one year, so things to consider. Um, and with BCG shortages as they are, we are struggling trying to figure out who we do three years of treatments for. So if we're switching them all to intravesical chemotherapy instead of BCG due to shortages, we're, we're mostly doing just one year of treatment. So for those who are relapsing, we gotta ask ourselves, why are they relapsing? Um, is it due to recurrence of disease within the bladder itself or could it be from other sources? And we always need to be thinking about upper tract imaging and making sure we're not missing an opportunity to diagnose an upper tract tumor that is seeding the bladder and being our source for recurrence. This is uh, data from Switzerland uh, uh, looking at 110 patients that had failed uh, BCG and they asked the question, how, why were they relapsing? Over half of them had either evidence of upper tract disease or urethral disease as a source. So for those um, who relapse and are diagnosed with superficial disease, how do you treat them? Well, a second induction course of BCG has proven to be very successful. So if you look at data in this cohort of 116 patients that received a section, second induction course, they did very well. Uh, their uh, likelihood of responding uh, to uh, the second induction course was almost 90% at the three-month time period, and that was relatively durable with two-thirds of them uh, continuing to be uh, disease-free at three years' time. Um, this was irrespective of the stage of their tumor at the initial diagnosis, whether they were CIS, TA, or T1. And the interval between induction courses didn't seem to make a difference on those who responded either. So always consider that section, second induction course of BCG. What if they have persistent high-grade T1 disease afterwards? Well, these patients don't do very well. Again, we already talked about the high risk of progression to muscle invasion in those tumors. Um, so consideration for early cystectomy needs to be considered. Why? If you do early cystectomy, you optimize their survival outcomes. If you wait and try to push them through salvage therapies, these patients tend not to do as well. So considering being more aggressive in those patients um, needs to be thought of. Um, what if you have persistent disease after the second induction BCG? Well, again, same thing. We're, we're, we're taking these patients through a pathway where intravesical therapies um, aren't working, and the salvage therapies that we have available now don't seem to work all that well. There's clinical trials out there, we'll talk about some of those, but these are patients that we have to really be asking ourselves, should we be um, salvaging and uh, keeping the bladder intact, or should we be removing it? So what's the natural history of non-responders? Well, these patients have a high risk of progression and eventually spread. So what about those who either refuse cystectomy or consider to be cystectomy ineligible? 
well, the EUA would say we should consider them for a clinical trial. Um, what are those options? Well, salvage therapies, as we talked about, generally don't work that well. If you look at the durable response with mitomycin C, it's less than 20%. If you look at the two-year um, um, uh, recurrence-free survival with valrubicin, it is less than 10%. Uh, sequential chemoimmunotherapy intravescally didn't prove to be any more beneficial. Um, newer agents, gemcitabine has a lot more promise. Um, it has good initial responses in the salvage setting, but the question is, is are those going to be durable? Um, taxanes, there's, there's anecdotal uh, data out there on those and combinations with taxanes with gemcitabine together in uh, sequential administrations. Um, there's data out there that is somewhat promising, uh, but certainly more data to come. What about immune checkpoint inhibitors? Uh, there's been two, two trials, randomized trials, the ADAP trial that was run by Noah Hahn, um, and then the other uh, SWOG trial looking at atezolizumab. Um, that data is still uh, to come, but uh, hopefully those will show some value uh, going forward. And then there's a whole host of other uh, novel agents and chemotherapy combinations that can be considered. So high-grade T1 bladder cancer, a lot of things to think about. Um, these are tumors that are on the verge over time of becoming muscle invasive. We're intervening at a time that we've got to figure out how aggressive to be or not to be when we talk about preserving the bladder or not. So part of stratification for that is going to be what is seen on restaging TURBT, how they respond to intravescal therapies, and we always got to be thinking about times in which we pull the trigger and we offer them cystectomy. Um, so I'll leave it at that. And Thank you. Do we have any questions on T1? We're going <clears> to <throat> pivot back to the original intent of the ARS through the AUA, and I'm not sure if the poll everywhere is going to be a show of hands. We're going to do a manual count, but let's go ahead and ask your question here, and we'll Anyone can take that. I'm going to say that in my practice, um, I was using really the um, a, a fish test for patients that had had um, sort of equivocal cytology or post-treatment related like BCG and stuff where the cytologies are not as accurate or reliable. That would be the indication in my particular practice. Um, use it in similar circumstances. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, just to be clear, the guidelines would indicate fish for the use of uh, patients with uh, positive uh, or atypical cytology to, to adjudicate uh, basically an atypical cytology. That's really, at least you know, guidelines-based, what uh, fish would be used for. There's other data, obviously, uh, Ashish Kamat has talked a lot about sort of that anticipatory positives. So you finish BCG and you uh, get a fish, and if it, that fish is positive, that they are likely to go ahead and recur. Um, I think there's debate about whether they're going to recur or whether they already have residual disease, but that, I would say, from a guidelines perspective, is, is how people use fish. Yeah. The, the other question you have to ask is, what do you do with that, right? So if you have a positive fish, but no visible disease on imaging, cystoscopy, biopsies randomly of the bladder, urethra, what have you not, those are negative. 
what do you do with that? You know, do you do you treat them more? Do you get more aggressive, or do you just change your surveillance? For us, we're just making sure we monitor them closely so we can document with tissue a biopsy that proves the location of the recurrence. Um, so it, it interjects some question on how to manage it. Yeah, and you know, for me, and I think that after you get BCG or bladder that are red and inflamed, and there's always a struggle with what cancer is and not cancer is, and if I look like that, I have that struggle. And if I have a, a fish that's positive, even though it doesn't mean they have cancer at that time, they're just at high risk. You know, I think that patient, if I see something a little weird on on cisco or I'm not 100% sure, it'll probably tip me off to maybe say maybe I should biopsy them or something if it's going to make a difference. So that's kind of how I use it. But uh, it's certainly uh, if it's positive, doesn't mean you have cancer there. We don't. I don't think any of us knows, but I just you know use it to identify a patient at high risk of having a biopsy if I see something. You guys know that we're going to um, ask about that when we treat them. We're going back into this red area. You biopsy it. It says inflammation. I don't know. I need to recheck the whole area. Am I missing cancer in there? So we're going to have a case in a few minutes, which really kind of talks to, you know, using enhanced uh, imaging and, and blue light and narrow band and things. So we might wait for that to talk a little bit about that. But it's a good question. And we all face the red patch problem uh, in these high-risk people. And I will say one more comment. During the pandemic, when there were a lot of older patients and they weren't able to come in and stuff, we did pilot a little bit of, of uh, marker um, and uh, we're able to do some of those home kit testing and get a urine test and have them sent in. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really replacing cystoscopy, but it was better than doing nothing for patients. So we did participate in a little bit of that, and it gave some confidence to the patients when their urine testing came back negative. I know there's a lot of testing underway looking at markers, both for workup for hematuria as well as in the bladder cancer space. We just need, you know, better studies to really be able to endorse it in an evidence-based fashion. Okay, there we go. All right, so we'll do, go ahead and uh, we can advance it, I guess. So this case is, is more of a patient with, uh, a female patient with muscle invasive bladder cancer, and we're going to um, kind of focus in on organ preservation um, and discuss some adverse pathology and treatments thereafter. So there may be a slight overlap with some of the um, pathology stuff, but the concept here is um, been a push to uh, consider organ preservation. We've often seen it done in men where there's prostate sparing in selective cases, and now we're seeing um, evidence that there could be a benefit to that. One of the disaster cases that's in the plenary today is a lady that presented with like complete evisceration through her vaginal cuff um, after cystectomy. That doesn't happen very often, but an example of an adverse outcome from a complete radical anterior generation. All right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about just the goals in muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer patients. We've already kind of addressed that a little bit with the first talk. But um, again, when I see a patient with newly discovered muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, one, more importantly, we're talking about bladder preservation strategies in this day and age and figuring out patients that may be candidates for that. Um, with female anatomic considerations, talking about several things. We'll get into this talk. Uh, diversion selection is obviously an important part of that. Lymph node dissection extent, and then adjuvant versus neoadjuvant therapies. And I'm gonna focus on the three mostly for this talk that are highlighted. 
So when we talk about female organ preservation, there's various goals in doing so. So part of it has to do with fertility. You know, while it is rare, we occasionally will see the young female in their 30s or 40s with significant bladder cancer. It's not very common, but fertility may be an issue in those patients, and how do we mitigate those uh, concerns? Sexual function quality of life, as well as endocrine function with ovarian function that we routinely will do bilateral ovarectomies during anterior exonerations for. When we're talking about female cystectomies, we also have to consider other things such as incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse risk, both before and after surgery, as Mike talked about the oncologic safety of preserving the endopelvic fascia and the rhabdosphincters, the anterior vaginal wall and urethra, as well as other gynecologic organs as far as risk for local involvement, um, as well as implications on reconstruction and complications. Um, so what is the incidence of pelvic organ involvement and what is its associated prognosis? Um, so it's relatively uncommon. This is uh, this table here. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, wrong button. Uh, see if I can get my. So this table here represents just a compilation of different studies over the past 20 years that have just looked at the overall incidence. To the side, I've, I've included just the summary of those data that suggests that the vagina posteriorly to the bladder is obviously the, the area that's at greatest risk, and we'll talk a little bit about patients who are at higher risk versus lower risk for that. The cervix is very uncommonly involved, and the uterus is also very uncommonly involved. However, if there is evidence of T4 disease involving any of them, their prognosis is quite a bit worse when you look about uh, overall survival, cancer-specific survival, and recurrence-free survival. This is another study from MD Anderson looking at similar data. Um, in their study, uh, they had a 2% involvement of the uterus. There was no involvement in any of their cases, which were 186 patients total. Uh, most of these patients uh, had significant uh, adverse pathologic features going into it, uh, but ovarian involvement is very, very uncommon. Uh, uh, vaginal involvement uh, was the highest risk, and patients who are at greatest risk for that were mostly those with hydronephrosis preoperatively or trigonal or posterior tumors in location. Um, so we need to keep those high-risk patients in consideration and non-urothelial malignancies such as endometrial carcinoma, cervical cancers were seen very infrequently, less than 1% of cases. Um, this cohort was different in the fact that they were comparing and contrasting the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and whether that impacted the incidence of gynecologic organ involvement. The answer is it did not impact it. Um, their conclusions that, uh, were that it's a low-risk entity to be involved and you should be considering uh, preservation in those who are uh, interested in doing so for a variety of different reasons. What is uh, the um, selection criteria for preserving the anterior vagina? This largely applies to those who are either considering uh, their long-term fertility or sexual function afterwards, but more commonly we're having this discussion and considering for people who are being considered for orthotopic bladder replacement. So the criteria that have been published previously by the group from Vanderbilt, uh, um, in 2002, they were looking for patients who, again, had no bladder neck involvement, no involvement of the trigone, and uh, no evidence of extensive carcinoma in situ. Uh, recurrences in those 22, uh, 21 patients, pardon me, was just one. In another uh, group out of Egypt, they looked at similar selection criteria for anterior vaginal wall preservation. Uh, again, similar things. Stage of the tumor prior to, um, uh, in 
absence of any gynecologic abnormalities uh, on imaging, but otherwise those that had unifocal tumors away from the trigone, and those that are interested in sexual activity were uh, patients who were uh, selected for in, in their cohort. Again, recurrences are uncommon, but uh, can still be seen as a product of that. What is the impact on gynecologic organ removal? Um, this was an, an interesting study and study and one that probably needs to be um, seen and discussed more often, um, but they took a, almost 80 patients who underwent standard cystectomy with diversion and they said, what is their overall quality of life and what is their sexual function quality of life specifically after treatment? The numbers aren't very good. Um, when you look at it, they said 40% of patients had a worse overall relationship with their spouse following cystectomy. 26 uh, ceased sexual activity altogether. 90% report loss of libido, presumably due to uh, ovary removal. 50% um, had pain with intercourse. And their overall uh, uh, sexual function index uh, decreased pre-op to post-op from 18 to 11. And so there's a tremendous impact from a quality of life standpoint from a sexual function that we largely have ignored for, for decades that we probably need to be having more of these conversations with our patients. What are the benefits uh, specific to uh, ovarian preservation? Um, this is another thing that I think it, that gets lost a little in this conversation um, is the ability to maintain ovarian hormonal function. We all know what happens when we remove the testicles or castrate them chemically with Lupron and other drugs. Uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, osteoporosis, um, um, other things that impact their overall quality of life. Same thing in these uh, patient population, and that is actually irrespective of age or menopause risks. There's, uh, so obviously if they're premenopausal, there's, there's a, a benefit to preserving ovarian function, but there's data that even in postmenopausal women, there's basal levels of estradiols and testosterone that are still produced that still stave off some of the cardiovascular risks. There was a nurse's health study that looked at over 30,000 uh, nurses who all underwent hysterectomy, and they looked at the uh, all-cause mortality of those who underwent oophorectomy versus not, and there was a 13% increased all-cause mortality in those who did. So there's clearly implications on ovarian uh, function and its removal at time of cystectomy that probably needs to be considered. The best way to um, preserve the female organs is also not to remove the bladder. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but know that there's clinical trials out there looking at chemo, immunotherapy, radiation combinations, looking at trying to identify patients that may be a candidate. Um, so just keep those in mind when you're enrolling uh, and evaluating these patients for possible enrollment in these studies. So let's transition a little bit to at the time of cystectomy, how should we approach the lymph node dissection? Um, so what's the rationale? Well, Incidence of node involvement is 25% in patients with muscle invasive disease. That goes up to 50% if they have variant histologies like sarcomatoid, micropapillary, or plasmacytoid uh, bladder cancers. What is the most powerful predictor of, of outcomes among cystectomy patients? It's the presence of lymph node metastases. Um, what is a systemic relapse for those that are node negative versus node positive? Well, the difference is it's 30% for those that are node negative, almost 80% if they're node positive. So there's a tremendous impact on survival outcomes based upon the presence of lymph node metastases, whether they're detected or not. This is just data from USC that uh, was published over 20 years ago now, just showing for people with the, in the absence of neoadjuvant therapy, um, how do they do from a survival standpoint? Again. 
looking at the lymph node positive patients, you can see that uh, cure rates with surgery alone uh, reach only 30%, so 70% of these patients are, are progressing with their disease. So what's the impact uh, on survival based upon the quality of the pelvic lymph node? Uh, this is uh, data from Sloan Kettering, and they just said, what is their difference in outcome, whether you removed a lot of lymph nodes or just a few, irrespective of their involvement? Well, there was a significant survival advantage, in this case, stratified by the presence or absence of more or less than eight, eight lymph nodes. This data can be, has been extrapolated um, in more sophisticated ways uh, based upon pathologic stage at the time of cystectomy. You can stratify outcomes based upon the number of lymph nodes removed at the time of surgery, so the more lymph nodes removed, the better these patients did, irrespective of whether they were node negative or node positive. Among those that are lymph node positive, uh, the group from USC 20 years ago published their uh, outcomes based upon lymph node density, so the number of lymph nodes positive versus the total number of lymph nodes removed. You can ma manipulate those numbers either way. If you have a greater number of lymph nodes positive, your outcomes are going to be worse. If you remove fewer lymph nodes, your denominator is going to uh, lower and your outcomes are also going to be worse, and that's stratified by a density of greater or less than 20%. So what kind of lymph node dissection should we be doing? There's a lot of people who have done either radiographic or surgical mapping to try to figure out how best to optimize it. Uh, this is the group out of Egypt that looked at uh, their um, dissections that they took all the way up to the inferior mesenteric artery, so a complete pelvic and a lower retroperitoneal dissection. Um, in their data, you can see that uh, the higher uh, the lymph nodes were taken, the greater the number of lymph node positive uh, patients were identified. They concluded that the pelvic basin is the primary landing zone for these and spread to higher lymph node basins or secondary. Bilaterally was, bilaterality was seen in 40% of patients um, and skipped basins were relatively uncommon. This is uh, a multi-center uh, group that also included the group out of Egypt, but they performed a similar study. Um, and when you look at single, so patients who had a single lymph node that was positive, uh, you can look at the distribution of where those single lymph nodes were seen. Almost all of them were seen below the bifurcation of the aorta, so what we would consider a, a typical extended lymph node dissection would capture all of those patients in this study. And when you see patients with laterality of their tumor, you had contralateral spread to the uh, opposite basins in 16%. So there is no unilaterality to bladder cancer when it comes to the preferential location of where their tumors wind up uh, with nodally. This is Urs Studer's uh, attempt to map out the distribution of primary landing zones based upon lymphocentigraphy. Um, if you did a limited lymph node dissection, just the external and the obturator lymph nodes, you're going to capture 50% of the primary basins. If you do a standard up to the bifurcation of the common iliac, you're going to capture 80%. And if you go up to the bifurcation of the aorta, you're going to capture 90% of those patients' uh, primary landing zones. So how does that impact survival based upon the extent of the lymph node dissection that you do? Um, well, if you do node lymph, no lymph node dissection compared to a lymph node dissection, um, obviously the patients with a lymph node dissection are do better. You cure 30% of those patients. If you do an extended compared to a limited, there's still a survival advantage for those that have a more thorough dissection. If you do a standard versus a super extended, these patients still do better. There is no data that demonstrates that an ex a super extended up to the IMA compared to just a 
extended to the bifurcation of the aorta, there's no difference in survival among those patients. There's randomized data looking at this. So if you look at this, they, they characterize this as extended versus limited dissection, but it's really a super extended lymph node dissection uh, compared to a standard lymph node dissection. So up to the IMA versus just from the bifurcation of the common iliac distal. Comparing and contrasting those two groups, randomized uh, 400 patients, endpoint was 15% difference in recurrence-free survival. None of those endpoints were met in the study, although you can see from the survival cores there was a trend towards improvement, but it did not reach statistical significance. So level one data does not demonstrate an, a benefit in those two comparisons uh, as far as a survival advantage for that population. There's more data um, outside of just this paper that says what's the impact of neoadjuvant chemotherapy on these outcomes. Well, all the data that we've talked about before was largely in uh, predates uh, wide implementation of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So when you do have a, a population of patients where neoadjuvant chemotherapy is routinely given, um, how do these patients do? Well, while there is a, a trend, for the most part, there is no difference in outcome based upon the extent of the lymph node dissection that you do. So it raises some questions in these pretreated patients, how aggressive should we be? What about variant histologies on the extent of the lymph node dissection? Um, it's not clear from this data um, that was published. This was a, a SEER uh, database analysis of 19,000 patients trying to tease out whether the presence of a variant histology at time of cystectomy made an impact on the quality of the lymph node dissection. The answer is if you had a variant histology, there was no impact on the extent of the lymph node dissection that you did. Why? It's hard to say, and I think the SEER data is a little bit limited on exactly what variants we're dealing with because there's different implications for squamous versus plasmacytoid versus uh, uh, sarcomatoid variants, so we need to understand that data better, but it's hypothesis generating and certainly uh, warrants more, more uh, consideration. So what does the NCCN guidelines say? What does the AUA say as far as what we should be doing? Um, so. NCCN would say that um, generally they would recommend everything from the bifurcation of the aorta distal, um, generally at the crossing over of the ureter downstream, so mid common iliac distal. Uh, the AUA says at minimum you should do a standard dissection of the bifurcation of the common iliac distal, um, but um, dealer's choice whether you go above that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here talking about adjuvant therapies because this was talked about quite a bit in the uh, first uh, talk, uh, but systemic therapies are becoming more prevalent as far as what tools we have to use with our medical oncologists. For a long time, all we had was cisplatin, and then we started getting other drugs like gemcitabine and then the whole host of immunotherapies and other uh, agents to use. Uh, we know that adjuvant chemotherapy benefits. The interesting thing is, is it may preferentially be specifically those that are node negative compared to node positive. When you look at node positive patients, the use of adjuvant therapy didn't seem to have as much of a, a survival impact. So again, hypothesis generating. Uh, Meta-analysis data would say globally these patients tend to do better. These are uh, two additional studies compared uh, uh, looking at uh, immunotherapies uh, with immune checkpoint inhibitors. We already talked about the nivolumab data, and this is a tezolizumab data. Um, this data was not statistically significant for a benefit, but when you look at the actual 
um, outcomes as far as uh, uh, survival. They're actually very similar in comparison when you look at the immunotherapy uh, patients. Um, predictors of response uh, were those that had bladder tumors compared to upper tract tumors. Those who had received prior chemotherapy actually did better with immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting. And then obviously PD-1L, PD-L1 uh, expression, uh, the higher it is, the better these tend to respond. Um, so when we talk about take-home points, uh, female organ preservation, it's certainly feasible. Patient selection is going to be important, um, so you've got to walk, work through those issues with the patient and try to figure out which one should be considered for it, and again, mitigating those risks for local recurrences, particularly with the vagina. Um, the degree of lymph node dissection, there's a lot of data supporting the use of a more extended lymph node dissection, but that is, can be impacted by the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and variant histology like we talked about. Um, going up above the bifurcation of the aorta, there's really no data that supports that to date. Um, and then adjuvant therapy is certainly based upon the presence of adverse pathologic features at the time of cystectomy. So I'll leave it at that. All right, any questions on that talk? And if not, we'll bring up the next talk that's available. Maybe number two. Um, if you, there's no data um, that supports the dissection of the free sacral region that improves outcomes um, for, from a node standpoint. Um, and uh, one of the trials uh, demonstrated that and, uh, when they compared the nodes above the bifurcation of the aorta and the presacrals incorporating those didn't make any difference. Okay. Um, we're going to move on to another case. This one is a, a non-invasive bladder cancer, an intermediate risk patient. We're going to talk a little bit more about quality of the TUR, resection, enhanced imaging, and that'll be uh, Jeff Holzberlein. Great. Thanks, Mike, and thanks for having me be part of the course today. Um, so, you know, I'll try to see, th th this isn't going so well, obviously, with AV, so I can default to a blackboard and chalk up here, if anybody remembers, if they got an eraser, but we'll try to see if the AV, we can get this working today. So, um, I'm tasked with uh, talking a little bit about uh, intermediate risk, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, quality of uh, transurethral resection, and uh, some enhanced imaging techniques. So the case is a, uh, a low-grade TA tumor. Uh, it's a 70-year-old male with newly uh, diagnosed bladder cancer, appears low-grade, non-muscle invasive, but multifocal and moderate volume, which places it in the immediate ca uh, risk category. Um, so some of the goals of the discussion today are going to be discussing the management of low-grade TA tumors. We'll talk a little bit about the role of office blue light and office fulguration, um, as well as quality indicators of TURBT, techniques of uh, TURBT, and um, some other uh, things around uh, management of this type of disease. Uh, we already covered that. So uh, this talk, actually, I wanted to dedicate to Harry Herr, and actually I could probably do it to Dr. Soloway, who's also in the audience today. I'm sort of embarrassed giving a talk about TURBT with him in the audience, but... I'll do my best uh, not to disappoint either one of these uh, people who have come before us and taught us a lot about TRBT. And when you're a fellow with Harry up in New York, one of the interesting things is he'll leave you alone to do a cystectomy, but he'll never leave you alone to do a TUR. 
And I think that really speaks to the sort of uh, you know, importance that he places on TUR. And my residents will tell you the same thing. If they were here, they would tell you how big a pain in the ass I am when we're doing TURs because I'm constantly in their ear and constantly over their shoulder telling them about um, you know, the quality of the TUR. It's a really critical thing that we do. And I really can't uh, overemphasize that because one, you need to get a diagnosis. So you've got to make sure that you're not getting all cautery artifact. You've got to move along quickly. You've got to be able to get a good specimen so that you can get the right diagnosis. Number two, you need to re remove all visible disease. The AUA guidelines, and I'll show this in a second, recommend that we remove all visible disease. So you've got to get rid of it all. And three, you've got to do that safely, hopefully without perforating the bladder. So it is a very challenging procedure to do, and I think people underestimate the challenge. And I you know, for those of us who do a lot of bladder cancer, I would challenge you uh, the number of times somebody gets referred in after a TURVT and you look in there and simply a biopsy was all that was taken and there's disease everywhere. And I think that speaks to the importance oftentimes that we feel about going back and re-resecting many of these patients because we're really not quite sure whether there might still be residual disease. And in order to get responses to any type of intravesical therapy, I feel very strongly about getting rid of all the disease. So uh, today, uh, when I was actually given the talk, they uh, said that they wanted me to cover some uh, tips and tricks about TRBT. And I don't know if I came up with this, but it's probably not. I'm not clever enough. But one of my former mentors told me that tips and tricks are for charlatans, magicians, and hookers. So maneuvers and techniques are for surgeons, and that's what I'm going to try to cover today. So uh, just a little history, the first TURBT was formed back in 1910. It's not a new uh, procedure, but obviously the technology has changed dramatically uh, since that time. Uh, but the method really hasn't. As I mentioned, uh, the AUA guidelines talk about an initial diagnosis of bladder cancer, that you should perform a complete visual resection of all bladder tumor. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And they do talk about when technically feasible. We'll talk about some of the challenges of when it is very difficult to do that. Um, the goals of TURBT have been sort of, uh, you know, published and, and kind of outlined, but obviously we want to do complete resection of tumor, although this is not really done that often. And again, many of us have that experience. You just got somebody that supposedly had a resection of the tumor, you look back in and there's still a lot of tumor in there. Um, you want to get muscle in the specimen. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times people get in there and they'll, and I've seen this happen a lot too, they look in there and they say, oh, that's muscle invasive, I'm just gonna do a biopsy, I'm not gonna get uh, muscle in the specimen. You can't do that. And there are a number of times you actually resect the disease and lo and behold, it's T1, it's not actually muscle invasive. So it's really critical to make sure you're getting deep enough to get muscle so that you can diagnose this. Don't just look in there and say, gosh, that looks bad, I'm just gonna do a little biopsy and prove it's bladder cancer and then send them on. Obviously you wanna do it without bladder perforation. Um, immediate installation of intravesical chemotherapy, and then obviously giving adjuvant uh, intravesical therapies when indicated. So uh, again, Harry uh, spent a lot of time talking about this, and, and uh, this was previously covered, I think, in one of Tim's talks. But again, it just demonstrates the value of re-resection and that um, in order to get the best response to intravesical therapies, particularly BCG, re-resection improves that. And there have been a number of publications that show the better you do about getting all the disease out and going back and re-resecting that disease, the better likelihood they have of responding to BCG. Um, and again, this was shown previously, just showing that if uh, residual disease is found on re-resection, they don't do as well as if they uh, have a complete resection. Um, 
some other data that supports the value of TRBT. So if you look at multimodal therapy, uh, trimodal therapy with radiation and chemotherapy, the strongest predictor in every series that's out there is the ability to completely resect the disease. So that R0 status, if you can resect all the disease prior to trimodal therapy, they're going to have a much better outcome. Um, the, the completeness of uh, TURBT and resecting all tumor uh, prior to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I think this remains controversial. And, and what I mean by this is that, you know, we, we clearly know that a P0 is associated with better outcomes. The question is how you get to that P0 um, may or may not matter. So whether or not you get, with, get to that P0 with your TURBT and then you just consolidate with chemo, or whether you get to that P0 with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I think we don't really know the answer to that. Um, clearly, the initial stage is probably the driver overall of how people are going to do. So uh, clearly, if you're a T4 um, and you get neoadjuvant chemotherapy and you end up being a PT0, you're not going to do as well as if you were a T1. So um, the initial stage probably drives that more than anything else. Um, what about the radical TUR? Of course, there are series out there, probably the most famous is from Solsona that shows that with a TUR, BBT alone, even in T2 disease, you can cure people. It's been reported in up to 30% of people, but I think historically we'd say only about 10% of people probably are cured with TUR alone in muscle invasive disease. And here's just uh, that data that I previously uh, mentioned. All right, what about enhanced cystoscopy? So this is a hot topic. We talk, we've touched on it a little bit uh, earlier, and uh, there are sort of a couple of different uh, enhanced cystoscopies. So the two are narrowband imaging and uh, blue light. Uh, blue light it uses uh, CISVU or hexolevulinic acid, uh, which is an optical imaging agent. It's a, in, uh, a substance taken up by all bladder, cancer cell, bladder cells in the bladder. Bladder cancer cells lack an enzyme to excrete it, so it accumulates in the cell. It's a photophore, so when you put on a wavelength of light, in this instance it happens to be blue, they fluoresce, and so it makes it easier uh, to hopefully detect the disease. So here are just a couple of images. So this is what white light cystoscopy might look like of a lesion. This is that same lesion under blue light cystoscopy. Um, that was actually a specific case of mine. And then here's just a couple of what narrow band imaging can look like. So again, um, these two techniques uh, can be utilized to help us sort of uh, detect tumors. Um, so where are they commonly used? Well, you can use it at initial TURBT to make sure that you resect all the disease. Some people will use them after BCG, uh, particularly in high-risk patients if they go back to re-resect something based on, again, maybe an atypical cytology or maybe a positive fish. Um, in patients with multiple uh, multifocal low-grade tumors, so those patients who keep coming in and every time they have all these uh, small low-grade tumors pop up, it can be really useful. I think what it does is it can help you identify those tumors much better. They're oftentimes small and hard to see. And then and the advantage to that is then that you give patients a longer time, hopefully before they recur, or maybe they don't recur at all. Um, in patients with recurrent high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, I think a lot of us use it in that re-resection space. So you've resected it, it comes back high-grade T1 or a high-grade TA, and you're going to go back and re-resect prior to BCG. Uh, we use that to make sure we get all the disease out. Um, and then the guidelines would specifically call it out for patients with a positive cytology but a negative white light cystoscopy. So you've done a cysto, it's negative, but the cytology comes back positive, then they usually recommend, if available, enhanced cystoscopy. Um, these are just some of the other ones that uh, exist out there, and they're all rel relatively similar in terms of their indication. 
So there are multiple studies uh, that support the use of uh, blue light uh, cystoscopy. Primarily for initially it was used for increased detection. And so there's no doubt, uh, both uh, whether that's narrowband imaging or whether that's blue light, that you can detect more tumors. And this has been demonstrated in numerous studies, uh, some of those are which are listed here below. Specifically, and I think um, uh, Sanjay made this a point earlier, it can be really tough, right, when we're looking at CIS. CIS, particularly after BCG, can be really difficult to sort of say, gosh, is that just inflammation? Is that CIS? And it can be really useful. And this was a, a study by Trinity uh, Vivalacqua out of uh, Hopkins that just showed that it's really useful uh, for the detection of CIS as well. And so, again, I, say, I, would, I would highly, highly recommend the utilization of something like this for CIS. Um, what about flexible cystoscopy in the clinic? So this uh, was a, a paper that SIA published uh, looking at the utilization of uh, blue light cystoscopy with flexible cysto in clinic for detection. And again, demonstrated that you can uh, in detect more tumors than on white light. The challenge with this, and uh, you know, I'm not sure if anyone in the audience is using this, but the, is really sort of the workflow because they have to come in, they have to get it instilled into the bladder, then they have to go sit for at least usually 30 to 45 minutes out in the waiting room and then come back and get their cystoscopy. And so the workflow is a little bit challenging around that. Um, the other thing that I would sort of uh, maybe sort of argue a little bit is that we probably don't miss a lot of high-grade lesions in the bladder uh, with our current sort of white light cystoscopy and then using either fish or cytology. So what you're probably picking up in the clinic with flexible blue light are low-grade tumors. And so my answer is sort of, well, so what? You'll catch that on the next cysto. Those aren't really dangerous tumors. Um, and so I think if you don't really see that, um, probably not the end of the world. Um, so really the, the, most, uh, the most important ones to catch are those high-grade ones, and I think we do that pretty well. Um, in addition to increasing uh, detection, we know that we can decrease recurrences, and again, that's been demonstrated in multiple studies. So the ability to detect the disease and then completely resect the disease results in decreased recurrence, and so that's really important uh, because obviously that's really important to our patients. We don't want to have to be going back every three months and resecting these people, so if we can prevent recurrences, that's going to be really useful. How about progression? And I think this is a little bit of sort of what I would say is the holy grail, and that is can we prevent somebody from going from a high-grade TA to a T1 because we're better at resecting and better at detecting? And the answer is, well, statistically, no. Uh, Ashish has done work on this, and the, the, uh, although it does suggest a trend towards improving, uh, uh, reducing progression, we've not been able to actually demonstrate that it reduces progression. Interestingly, though, what it has demonstrated is that you can reduce the need for cystectomy. Now, that's not quite the same thing, although you might initially think it is, because obviously we do cystectomies for lots of different things, not just uh, when they progress to muscle invasive disease. Um, there are also studies out there um, that have been looking at whether it's cost-effective, and again, it has been shown to be cost-effective, because again, if you're able to reduce recurrences and not having to go to the operating room all the time, that actually ends up being cost-effective for our patients. Um, there aren't any head-to-head -head comparisons about MBI, and I get this question all the time. Well, what, what's the difference between MBI and, and, uh, and, and blue light? Can, can I just use MBI? And the answer is, we don't really know. However, there was a recent study that suggested that MBI really probably improves detection, but it didn't really reduce recurrences. So, um, again, no head-to-head -head comparisons, um, so we're, we're not really sure on this. But I would say, if you have these available, then utilize them when you can. 
Um, where do I use it? So I already kind of mentioned this a little bit. Um, one of the places that I didn't mention, though, is I get a number of patients who are referred in for what they quote BCG failures. And in many instances, I think what that is, is rather than a failure of BCG, it's a failure of the initial person who did the TUR to actually resect all disease. If you leave a tumor in a patient's bladder and expect that BCG is going to get rid of it, that's just not going to work. I personally also don't believe that works with CIS. So I think if you have a diffuse CIS and you think that BCG is going to get rid of all of that, I, I just don't think that really happens. I think we do that with our resection, and then we can prevent recurrence by BCG. Um, so again, I think it's very useful in that setting where I'll have somebody referred in, they've been told they're BCG re refractory resistant, I go back in with blue light, I find the disease resected, and lo and behold, they respond to BCG. And then of course, uh, we talked about this, re-resection in high-grade T1 disease or multiple low-grade tumors. Okay, switching gears a little bit uh, to some more about the techniques of TURBT, bipolar versus monopolar resection. So, um, you know, most institutions now have both bipolar and monopolar uh, available. And, you know, I think that's sort of really very provider dependent on which people like better. Um, the potential uh, advantages of bipolar is that um, there's decreased cautery artifact. That's not been proven, but suggested. Decreased obturator reflex, again, suggested but not proven. Decreased bleeding, um, possibly. Um, and it is safe in patients who have an AICD or uh, pacemaker. So theoretically, you'd be far enough away, but if the anesthesiologist gives you a hard time about it, this is safe in those patients. So th those are some of the potential advantages. What are monopolar advantages? Well, one is improved visibility. Anybody who's attacked a large tumor and is doing a bipolar and or saline knows that it can get really cloudy really quickly. And so I really prefer to do those with monopolar in water because I can just see so much better. Um, and it's faster. There's no doubt that bipolar is a little bit slower and takes a little bit longer, but uh, monopolar seems a little bit faster. What about some other te uh, techniques? Well, one of the things that's, uh, that several uh, groups have published on is this uh, technique of what's called in-block resection. So what you're essentially doing is taking the tumor as a whole. Um, and there are a variety of methods sort of described to do that. Uh, but uh, the advantage of that theoretically is that it orients the specimen so that when the pathologist gets the specimen, they can say, oh, look, I can see the top of this tumor. I can see the bottom of this tumor. And it's a little bit more um, uh, uh, advantageous for the pathologist to actually be able to stage it. Um, but again, it can be a little bit challenging. It has some challenges as well. And that is the technique that you use. And then if it's a sizable tumor, oftentimes you kind of got to break it up to get it out of the bladder. So that sort of, sort of defeats the purpose a little bit. Um, this is a, a picture here, and hopefully I can, I'm not sure I can get this to play. This is a video. I don't know if you can click on it. So this is uh, one of my uh, cases where I was uh, piloting an unblock technique. And what we're doing is we're using, in this instance, we're using a holmium laser. And we sort of just go around the base of this tumor here, and then almost sort of like uh, you would do with a holep, once you sort of get that started, you can kind of use the beak of your scope or the beak of the laser tip and sort of get up under this thing and sort of push it up. Um, and that's really sort of uh, the technique. And right now we're piloting using the thulium laser for this. Uh, the thulium potentially has some advantages in terms of its ability to uh, sort of uh, for, for tissue cutting or excision or ablation over maybe holmium, and particularly in terms of its depth, because it doesn't have a lot of depth. So... Um, again, uh, just one method of doing sort of an unblock resection. Can you go to the next slide, please? Or maybe I can do it. Let's see. 
Um, this is blue light resection, so if you could play this again, just showing again a little bit uh, about what a blue light detection sort of looks like. So I'm going to show a, a white light picture here and then sort of a blue light picture here. One of the challenges around blue light is that when you get up around the bladder neck, it's not oftentimes quite as useful. You'll get a lot of tangential and that'll kind of all light up. So there's definitely a learning curve with using blue light. I think the more that you do it, the better you get in terms of identifying what's really positive and what's really not. All right, and can we advance it? Here we go. Um, so one of the things that uh, people talk a lot about is fulguration of CIS. And quite honestly, I'm not really a big fan of fulguration of CIS. I think, again, uh, when possible, you should resect the disease. But clearly, there are times where it's in a really challenging location and really tough to sort of uh, do it. So uh, my sort of uh, maneuver on that is to actually fulgurate on cut. So rather than fulgurating on the coag, you fulgurate on your cut setting. Now you have to be careful, because if you're not careful, you're gonna go really deep really quickly. But I think you get a much better fulguration if that's what you decide to do with using the cutting technique as opposed to the uh, coag technique. Um, all right, everybody's had this, um, and unfortunately, I've had some uh, bad ex uh, experiences with this. This is the air bubble, and this tends to happen particularly when you're resecting anteriorly, right? So you're working in the dome, you're working anteriorly, you get these air bubbles, um, and, you know, how do you get these things out? And, you know, for a long time, I kind of said, oh, it's not that important to get them out. You know, you're resecting, and yeah, you hear that pop, but nothing really ever happened until I was resecting somebody one time and got a big pop, and it bivalved his bladder. When I looked back in, all I saw was bowel. So this is a real phenomenon, and you have to be careful about res uh, resecting uh, in these bubbles because, again, you can get explosion of this, and you have to be really careful. So the technique that I was sort of showing there, uh, one of the techniques is um, to put your scope into the air bubble, just crack the scope so you're not pulling it all the way out. You can still direct your scope where you're at. Turn your water on so you're displacing the air with water as you're going through and then just sort of direct it up there. And then, of course, putting some downward pressure. There's also a, a way where you can take the resectoscope and, res and reverse. So you can take the outflow and put the water on the outflow and use the inflow as the evacuator. And that also can be useful for getting the air bubble out. So again, a couple of maneuvers in terms of uh, getting rid of the air bubble. Decreasing the obturator reflex, boy, I, I mean, uh, you know, all of us worry about this a lot. And, you know, there's nothing worse than being in there with, uh, you know, particularly a resident and they get a huge obturator and then you look back in there, you just see a giant hole in the side of the bladder. Um, and your stomach, your stomach just sinks, and you, you know, you cross your fingers that it's going to be extra perineal. Um, so what are some ways? Well, obviously, you know, general anesthesia, that probably helps a little bit. You ask them to paralyze the patient. Um, of course, you know, if they're not busy looking at their cryptocurrency, they might be actually paralyzing the patient, making sure they don't have any twitches. But uh, again, important to communicate with your anesthesiologist and ask them not to do that. Spinal versus general, um, probably not much difference uh, in terms of that. The biggest thing that I've found is keeping the bladder less distended. So again, I'm constantly telling my, my residents, empty the bladder, empty the bladder, keep it thick. That's the best way, I think, of decreasing the obturator reflex. You can do an obturator block. So if you ask your anesthesiologist to do an obturator block, that can help decrease it a little bit. But again, I haven't really found a lot. And then some people talk about sort of extinguishing the obturator reflex by going over and sort of cauterizing or uh, not being deep with your cut and then going and cutting afterwards. I haven't found that that useful. Again, for me, mostly keeping the bladder as um, thick as possible has been the most useful. 
Um, so intravesical chemotherapy, and I know I'm running a little quick on time, so I'll move through these pretty quickly, but I think everybody's aware that it is recommended by the guidelines. Um, we have SWOG 0337 now that showed that uh, the response rate of gemcitabine uh, versus placebo was similar to the response of mitomycin historically. Um, and I have switched completely to gemcitabine. Those of you who have taken care of a lot of bladder cancer patients, I'm sure at one time or another have seen one of these in your practice. This is a patient after mitomycin. They have these non-healing ulcers in their bladder. Oftentimes they'll get these dystrophic calcifications. I do not use mitomycin at all anymore. I have taken out number of bladders for people whose bladder just gets completely defunctionalized by mitomycin, and I do not see that with gemcitabine. In addition, gemcitabine is a fraction of the cost of mitomycin. So again, I would highly encourage you to switch to gemcitabine if, again, if you're giving that single dose installation afterwards uh, over mitomycin. Um, so just to wrap up, uh, again, hopefully what I sort of imparted today is the importance of the TRBT. I really do not think that can be uh, overstated. You know, I think it's one of those things that all urologists oftentimes perform TURBT, and we think, yeah, that's great. Um, but again, it's, it's really critical to be doing quality TURBTs because I think that really influences the outcome, particularly in the hopes of being able to save somebody's bladder. I do find that there's value in these enhanced cystoscopy techniques, and I think a lot of us have, and these are some of the values that are listed sort of below. In block resection, I think that remains to be seen. There could be some potential advantages over that. Um, and then again, bipolar may uh, decrease cautery artifact, uh, and maybe with operator reflex, um, but some of the other ones are just keeping the bladder thick. So thank you. Any questions for Dr. Holzberlein? Okay. We'll, we do have a question. And while he's doing that, can you bring up the next case and we'll be ready to go? I'm sorry, repeat that last part. I couldn't hear. Yeah, so I, uh, and, and, and I'm going to paraphrase your question a little bit, uh, and that is, uh, what is, what happens oncologically if you perforate a bladder? That's, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I, I'll, I'll be interested in the opinions, and I think we'll get some different opinions up here. I think there are some people that feel very strongly that in a patient with bladder cancer, if you perforate, that you have, uh, you have worsened their oncologic uh, outcome. Um, the data really, the published data does not really support that. But I think people feel very strongly about that. Personally, I think if you're an aggressive resectionist, you're going to perforate a few bladders. And that's particularly true if you're letting, you know, learners do this. So, uh, I think, it, you, you know, I, I, my classic saying, if you do enough TURBTs, you're going to perforate somebody's bladder, particularly if you're doing good TURBTs. Um, but clearly, the goal is not to do that. Um, and then if you do, manage it appropriately, right? I mean, you need to know whether it's intraperitoneal or extraperitoneal, or even if it's extraperitoneal and it's large, you better be competent to fix that. Um, so that's what I would sort of say about that. I don't know what other people feel about the oncologic outcome.
with curing cancer and we expect all of it out of there. I think that's you know your first line of defense is PLDT. So I'm very interested in that. There's also like numerous studies out there looking at trainees and even attendings doing PLDTs where they routinely got um, uh, like a histogram afterwards. And even even amongst the attendings, there's a high rate of perforation that you, you think you don't have anything, but I, I bet you we underestimate what that serum is. And if we got histograms on everybody after PLDT, I mean, we'd be doing tons of this. I think it's really important though that if you, you know, there is a consideration to give perioperative uh, gemcitabine or give that in the study of perforation because you want to get the perfectionist and, and avoid that. So that's kind of my take on it. Yes. talking about in the clinic or are you talking about yeah um, I mean I can't imagine that in the clinic it's not more expensive uh, I'm not aware of any data for the flexible uh, um, blue light in terms of cost effectiveness uh, but you know certainly in the OR it does appear to be cost effective because if you can reduce recurrences save somebody I mean, you know, by far and away the very most expensive thing that we do right is OR time right I mean most places charge by the minute um, anesthesiologists charge by every 15 minutes. So, um, you know, if you can prevent that one time, you're going to cover that cost. Now, in the clinic, I, I'm not aware. I think it would probably depend a little bit on how you were managing it. So, and that's what uh, SIA has argued a little bit, is that SIA says, well, gosh, what it does is I can just, I'm, I don't take those people that are, I just treat them right. in the clinic, right? I just so, them in the clinic and prevent that. And I think Mike does I was going to keep Dr. Solway from hopping up because office-based fulguration is highly underutilized and, and, and that's exactly where it does, you know, you could do office fulguration without a blue light, but I think when you look at a Porforma, if you include office-based fulguration and small TURs, you can make uh, an economic, you know, benefit to doing it if you do it right. There is more cost. Let's say, just be honest, you have to buy the equipment or you have to lease the equipment. That's your major cost. It's not the per-click SysView installation, although they're, you know that's usually reimbursed. But you don't get paid more to do it. But if you add the cost of the equipment and everything and load it, I think you're going to have to do some you know, analysis to figure out where your break-even is. But it's in office fulguration and TUR. Right. So that, that, that's a say, especially for older people, OR constraints, especially during the pandemic, but even now, I mean, you know, if you can do somebody that's 82 and has some cognitive impairment in their office without any kind of complication, a small lesion, you, you know, you're saving them an anesthetic. Although I think you can make the argument you should just watch those anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> but yeah, some can be symptomatic though. Yep. Thank you. 
Yeah, no, I think that that, um, that technique is certainly described, right, and particularly in difficult areas where you're resecting um, is to resect and then do a cold cut biopsy, and that's certainly acceptable to get the value of having muscle in the specimen. Uh, I think, again, it, it's different between treatment and diagnosis. So the treatment is that you got to resect all that, and that means sometimes you're going to get deep into the muscle and the fat or perforate. You, you know, you don't want to do that, but avoiding that. And then diagnosis, where you're getting that cold cut biopsy uh, to just prove that there's muscle in the specimen. I don't see those two things as the same thing, because I think one is you're really being aggressive trying to get all the disease out. The second, you're just trying to prove that there's, you know, uh, there's muscle in the specimen. So a little bit different, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a recommended technique. One, one of the things, too, that we, you know, maybe you do in your practice, but we should all do better is the documentation and the note. The patient comes back two, three weeks later and you did 10 that day. You got to remember, you know, did I get it all? Was it complete resection? Did I perforate? Did I see fat? You can document these things in a checklist and that'll help you. And you can also photograph, you know, what it looked like at the end. You don't have to reflex just because, you know, a small TA tumor that they said, and you know, you did a wide resection and you saw fat. I mean, that guy might not need a re-resection as opposed to you know, something that was a little more challenging location-wise. I think it's on. Talk loud into it. And then. You know, I really haven't seen that with gemcitabine. I, I think they tolerate it very well. I think we're, and you know, again, a whole different talk is uh, this sort of interest I have of being aggressive resectionists and how often we actually just defunctionalize somebody's bladder, right? Because what happens is you, re you do these repeat resections, you're doing these aggressive resections, and in the end, they end up with this really crappy, shrunk up bladder. And I think chemo contributes to some of that as well, whether that's gemcitabine or, and certainly mitomycin. And, and, I mean, I've done cystectomies for that alone, right? I mean, they end up with a quality of life that's so poor afterwards. So I think that for my experience where I see that is in the repetitive, you know, people who have had repetitive resections, repetitive installations, repetitive BCG, that's where I see that. But I really haven't seen it just that single shot of gemcitabine. Um, and, again, you know, the, the sort of other side effects, that sort of sounds like systemic absorption, and that really would sort of suggest to me that there's probably a microperf or something that just wasn't appreciated. But otherwise, I haven't seen that. I will say that um, I have seen communications going around, like through bladder cancer networks and stuff, where people have said, hey, notice guy lost his hair. I had two. I had one. I had So it, it is a real phenomenon, even with single shot, but it's pretty rare. Um, and again, you know, for the take-home messages, avoidance of intravesical therapy, including the single shot for large resections, you know, really multifocal tumors deep, and if you are worried about perforation. Hair loss. I, it's been reported, and I've seen it in a rare, rare case, yeah.
Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, you, I think you're answering your question a little bit, and that is, you got to be safe about things. And I mean, obviously, sometimes we get in there, and, and there's, there's just, it's, it's not technically possible, right? But again, I think if, 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 and when it's technically feasible to resect all the tumor, you should do that. And I think there's benefit, even if you know they're going to go on to get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. That may be in terms of bleeding. That may be in terms of pain or uh, you know, other symptoms from a bulky tumor in their bladder. So. I mean, you know, I think the challenge is, let's say you have a big tumor like that that you're describing, but they keep bleeding, and they can't get them through chemotherapy because they keep bleeding. And so that, that's not done any good either. So, um, you know, again, when technically feasible, I feel you should try to resect all the disease in the bladder. I think it depends, too. I mean, patients have taught me a lot. Sometimes I would, I've looked at these scans, and their whole bladder's full. And I've had, you know, patient that said, you know, my wife's really frail. I can't have a cystectomy. Do what you can. And, and it's three years later, and they're NED, and it wasn't muscle invasive, and they've, gone, they've done well. So you can, if it's non-invasive, it might take multiple TURs. It might take, you know, if it comes back high-grade invasive, you know you're going to cystectomy. Do what you can that time. But you, you can, you know, through repetitive persistence, you can clear a lot, even, you know, 80, 90 percent if it's non-invasive. Those are extreme cases, but I have seen it. But if it, you're right, if it's, if it's clearly invasive and the handwriting's on the wall, you got to do what you got to do to get the diagnosis if you know all roads are leading towards that and, you know, you want them to not bleed during their neoadjuvant therapy, you have to kind of walk that balancing act too. The only other one thing I didn't mention that I think is a really useful tool in your arsenal when you're doing a lot of TRVTs is have an extra long resectoscope. I cannot tell you the number of times, particularly for obese people, which in Kansas City, most people are obese. Um, so that is an incredibly useful tool to be able to get to that posterior or dome uh, thing. So if you're doing a lot of TRBTs, I highly, highly encourage you to have one of those available so that if you get to where I just can't reach it, you can go to the extra long resectoscope, and that makes a big difference. Uh, just aside from that question, I was just going to make one comment for the obturator reflex. Um, Dr. Palau from Barcelona has talked quite a bit about a technique of just doing an obturator nerve block uh, with the patient in lithotomy. You just go medial in the obturator uh, uh, foramen and you just uh, inject 10 cc's of local on each side and it obliterates that risk for an obturator reflex as an alternative to general anesthesia and paralysis is another technique. I don't know if anybody has any experience with it. I have not found that useful. I, I, I haven't tried it, but um, 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think we don't have enough time. We can do another case, but we may run over because we only have about 10 minutes left. Or we can do more Q&A. Um, is there more questions from the audience that might be of best benefit and save time? Come on up. I thought it was excellent. I mean, I have a lot of notes here, and I think all of you did an amazing job. But I also thought I figured out all your ages roughly in my head, and I had more experience. I started doing this when you were all five years old. So just a few observations and maybe some hints and comments. Um, first of all, I'm That's all question. when you introduce yourself real quick because everybody knows. Everybody <laughs> You want to introduce yourself so everybody knows who you are. We oh, do, I'm but sorry, maybe Mark everybody. Soloway from Miami. Thank you. Um, so first of all, the high-grade PAs. One of your questions indicated that if you answered appropriately, that you would re-reset all, re-queue up all high-grade PAs. And two observations, just in please your comments. One, we have the only paper that shows, at least in my center that I've been at, there's an upgrading endoscopically for years, they're low-grade PA, they now have a little bit of atypia enough that they're calling them high-grade is what you're seeing. So I think there's an overgrading, and I think if we as urologists could every patient with high-grade PA do a re-QR, it's going to be great for the hospital, but for the economy, it's not a good idea, and I don't think there's any yeah. That's a great point. And so the question said indicated for, but in the guidelines, you know, there's there's a strong recommendation to for a T1, and it's an option, you know, for T, high grade TA. But I just said a few minutes ago, I don't take every TA tumor back for a re-resection if I felt like I did a good job. And I think there's some guidance that it's up to you on the TAs. Right. So you're right. All right, good point. The other thing about fish, and again, these are just quick observations from my notes, is I think if you have a good cytopathologist, I rely heavily. Yeah. I think you probably are, you know, biased by the benefit of having that great uropathologist to do the cytology for you. Um, there are not very many of them, and they're not everywhere USA, and there can be times where it's challenging, but yeah, we, the take-home message here was certainly uh, we don't use fish on all our patients routinely. There's a kind of a selected indication for it where it might be helpful, especially when your pathology is struggling. The other place I would say that has become recently problematic is with the new CARES Act and the re immediate release of results to patients. So I would, you know, anybody that has EPIC, uh, I'm assuming it's the same on Cerner, who then gets an inbox message from their patient saying, atypical cytology, what does that mean? What are you going to do about this? And I mean, four or five messages later. So uh, that has made it very difficult, I think, to, uh, you know, we, we may know that, but the patient doesn't. And so they read that on their chart before we've even had an opportunity to sort of weigh in on it. Right. Uh, a couple other very quick things, if you don't mind. I'm a big believer in general anesthesia. A lot of the centers I know, the anesthesia people, they like to do quick uh, uh, endotracheal. 
LMAs. How, how has that impacted, like, the obturator reflex? Do you notice well, very I little problem with it? it? Yes. And then they can say, oh, you know, I'm just, yeah, I know, but I'm yeah. the one that's going to be having a problem. If, if, if there's a technical problem or it creates a stick for you and it's a male reefer, et cetera. I just had, you made a very good point about the bladder circle and the UCURs of so many of our patients. So I would have a little slight changes, Jeff, in some of your comments. So I'm a believer in for the low grade PAs to minimize the scarring, et cetera, by close up biopsy. And then with the bipolar, that uh, ball electrode, uh, the button is, I think, very useful. Uh, just to, to minimize the amount of intersection. I, I use a lot of fulguration for just those type of papillary low grade and also all fulgurate CIS too. But anyway, I'm older than Jeff. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Solway, and we're honored that you're in, our, in attendance. I'd like to hear how you manage those rare cases where you can't reach the tumor in a male, for example, due to the anatomy or like the Geelong River yeah. scope, or you have to try to cut it into the outer wall, uh, anterior wall, but you can't just go there if you go through the meatus. So, so I, I can comment and then let them talk. So, I mean, I'm not too old to know to do perineal urethrostomy if I need to, and I've had to do those on occasion to really for that acute angulation. Everything Dr. Soloway said, complete relaxation, general anesthetic. If it's just reaching it, as Jeff said, the long scope, but sometimes the long scope and the angle are the problem. So there are patients where we've had to go in and, and you know shorten the route and change the angle with, a, with that. Um, I've really not been a fan of an open uh, removal, but I mean, I suppose that could be in your toolkit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I find the extra long mastectoscope is really, really useful for those people. I mean, it is the guy with the big belly, right? The big belly um, can be just really challenging to, to get up there. The other thing that I'll do sometimes is that, you know, I'll keep the bladder collapsed, and you got to get in really quickly and resect right off the bat before it descends and moves away from you. So they tend to move away from you as the bladder gets full or descended. So, you know, you empty them, you resect, you empty them again, you resect. It's challenging, but uh, that's another technique. And I, I don't love PUs. I mean, I, you know, again, I probably, um, I, I don't have a ton of experience with doing paranoid urethrostomies, but certainly that is a technique to, you know, for that angle to get up there, but, um, you know, not a big fan. Joe Pettis. Uh, I have a question about um, variant pathology and neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, I think it's Clear neoadjuvant chemotherapy is should be the standard of care for most invasive bladder cancer, but the guidelines are somewhat confusing regarding the use of it in multi uh, in in a, a variant pathology. Uh, they they suggest that we should head for early cystectomy, and so I wonder what your thoughts are, particularly when you have a patient with micropapillary or some other really nasty 
disease, should we operate on that first then to give the chemotherapy? The medical oncologists are, at least in my community, um, not clear on this and, and do typically want to push for early chemotherapy, and I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. Um, hey, Joe. Um, I will tell you that it's very um, histology, variant histology dependent for us. For plasma cytoid, we do early cystectomy on all of those. You can look at the micropapillaries. MD Anderson will give them all chemotherapy. We will do early cystectomy on those patients and consider them for adjuvant chemotherapy at our institution. Sarcomatoid is another variant histology that we will go straight to cystectomy for because of a high rate of nodal uh, involvement and a low response to chemotherapy. The squamous variants are a little bit interesting. Um, so if you look at some of the, the neoadjuvant trials, uh, the SWOG trial, looking at their response, there was actually a very high response in squamous patients uh, with squamous variants of urothelial carcinoma to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. But Christos Chimacleotis in our group published our data looking at those who had a greater than 50% component of squamous uh, component in the, in the bladder tumor, and they responded very poorly to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So if they have a high pre predominance of squamous, we will also take those to, uh, straight to cystectomy first. Um, other glandular uh, variants, we don't uh, discriminate much for those. The variant histology, when they went back and looked at the SWOG study, I believe had as good or better response, but you know, you've nailed it on the head. This variant is like everything. So it depends on what that variant is. There's not like one thing. And micropapillary is particularly an area where that's where, you know, like that molecular subtyping may actually be helpful because there probably are some that respond to therapy. There was a MSK results where they responded into intravesical therapies, and the MD Anderson study didn't show benefit there, and that's why they went to cystectomy. So I think it's because they give a name to a broad group, but there's a lot of heterogeneity within that subtype. So I wish there was a single answer for the, the answer to your question, but there's probably not. Sarcomatoids, they're big and nasty. They need to like be removed because you may just be doing nothing but chemo the whole time. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for mentioning Will Rogers' phenomenon in Oklahoma. Uh, boy, there. Do we have one more question, and then we'll we'll head out. Issue. I 
second thing, if you have high grade Q1, highly invaded, so we need to prove the muscle invasion and imaging or on, or on pathology to do a cystectomy because cystectomy is a reasonable option. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think on your first one, you know, if it says, you know, usually a pathologist can tell you it's an invasive tumor. They don't always have to mention the word muscle, but they'll know, like it's a sheet of really high grade, you know, that you have the indication to move forward with your treatment plan, including neoadjuvant, including chemo, including cystectomy. The T1s are variable, right? So, they're small little T1s that, you know, you need to bladder preserve and do your best and know there's a 70% chance you're going to save their bladder, and then there's ones that are god-awful and you need to do it. So I don't know that there's a single answer for that. I mean, you would have to sort of see the individual tumor, how big it is, location, multifocal, all the features that we mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one exception to doing a re-resection, right? If you get a T1 tumor and you and the patient make the decision to do a cystectomy, you don't need to do a re-resection in that point, and your re-resection is your cystectomy. So that's the one exception to that uh, rule is that uh, if you have a T1 then, and you're going to do a cystectomy, that's the decision that you have made. You don't have to do a re-resection. I don't think you have to prove whether or not there's muscle invasion in there. Uh, now, again, I guess you could argue that you're understaging the patient, and so that's where imaging is going to be important too. Um, and I think that would be a discussion you'd want to have. So, you know, you, if you don't have muscle in the specimen, they could be a T2. You're not giving them neoadjuvant chemotherapy you might be under-treating them. And in general, any cystectomy series has usually got 25-30% of non-invasive, either high volume or failed, progressed through their intrafescal therapy. So, I mean, you, you certainly would have the guidance to do that if that was the best decision. All right. Well, um, it is 9.30, so I want to thank you all for sitting with us today and getting through some of our AV technical difficulties, too. Thanks to the faculty, and hope to see you next year. Uh, please fill out those evaluations online because they help us to be able to come back. Thank you.